Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, we're talking today, the second day, about Isaac Asimov's Hugo and Award-winning classic, The Gods Themselves. Well, I've got some stuff to say myself about it, but why don't we start with you? What, what passages did you get that were of interest? Who wants to start? Okay, count. Now remember, everyone speak loudly and clearly. All right, great. What do you have? Um, on page two sixty-six. Two sixty-six, and we all have the same paperback edition. Yeah. Okay, that's near the end. Yeah. All right. And what did you? Where was? Where does the passage start? At the um, very last line of the page, where it says, "There's no reason for me to be boy." All right. This is great. Um, let me see, this is chapter 14, part 3. Okay, yeah, <coughs> 266. Did everyone got it? Okay, Carolyn, why don't you just start? And, and how far do you read down? Um, I go from there down to on the next page where it um, says, on the lunar surface, but for any other but the most routine of purposes. All right, why don't you just start? There's no reason for me to be coy. Surely you have not expected me to be uninterested in the fact that you have been carrying on experiments on the lunar surface. It's been no secret, and anyone might be interested. Yet no one seems to know the details of the experiments, except, of course, that in some way you are working on matters concerning the electron pump. It's a reasonable assumption, is it? It seemed to me that the experiments of such a nature to have any value at all would require a rather enormous setup. This is not of my own knowledge, you understand. I consulted those who would know, and it is quite obvious you are not working on such a setup. It occurred to me, therefore, that you might not be the proper focus of my interest. While my attention was drawn to you, others might be undertaking more important tasks. Why should I be used as a distraction? I don't know. If I knew, I would be less concerned. So I have been under observation. Godstein. Godstein chuckled. Yes. That, yes, since you have arrived. But while you have been working here on the surface, we have observed the entire region for miles in every direction. Oddly enough, it would seem that you, Dr. Dennison, and your companion are the only ones on the lunar surface for any but the most routine purposes. All right. I thought this was interesting because, um, like, in the beginning, or um, all through this section, you see that, um, what's his name, Dr. Neville, I think it is? Yeah. He's kind of setting um, Denison up to be this as a distraction, like, um, for Godstein. Like, mm-hmm. Godstein's supposed to be focused on Denison instead of what's really going on, so mm-hmm. he doesn't know what the other people are really trying to do. Okay. And um, I just thought it was interesting um, like the idea of using something as a distraction so people don't see what's really going on I see so you're pointing at the idea of subterfuge which the idea is of people acting and then having something else going on that distracts actually that's a very common ploy in the intelligence in the intelligence community for disinformation there is a, a a, a, a crucial need in a society such as ours for government to control information not by chopping people's heads off and throwing them in jail but by stopping inquiry in certain directions and distractions of this type are perfect uh, distractions of any type are perfect for getting people to look in a different direction in the old days back in you know long time ago the way to stop people from doing things is to shoot them or kill them in some fashion or uh, destroy them in some in some manner uh, throw them in jail communist societies used to do things like that imprison people nowadays there's two easy methods which can be used to control what society looks at and, and the information that people get the first is to destroy someone's reputation. The second is to put it out a distraction. 
And then either one works, and sometimes they're used in combination, destroying reputations or, distra- or, or, or distractions. And uh, this is the only way that's really sure-proof in a society such as ours for, for, doing, uh, for, for controlling the masses in a major way. Now, we ask the question, when people look at the society... You can say, well, if this is true, why doesn't why isn't it open? Why isn't it obvious? Why don't people reject it? So you have to say, well, why why would that occur? Why would it why would it be po- why would it be possible for people to do that to other people, but not have it come out? Well, just think about it. How many things happen in our society? And I'm not talking about just. United States right here and now, but human society over hundreds of years that have happened that turned out to be very real, but were initially scoffed at as being absolutely ludicrous, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, so many things. I mean, in the old days, when there was this idea that light could be both a wave and a quanta, that was about the radical idea that Einstein came up with, that I mean, Einstein, in a sense, created quantum mechanics, even though he had a very bitter dispute with quantum mechanics later on in his life. But the very idea that matter could have wave and particle properties, and to be quite honest, to this day, physicists haven't been able to lock down a particle. Whenever you look at a particle, it eventually, if you keep burrowing down deep enough, you get to a point which is massless. So really, the question is, you haven't, they've never actually seen a particle. They see things that move like particles, and they bump into things, but you don't know, are they actual solid billiard balls, or are they things that are fields that resist displacement? It's very difficult. Uh, physicists do not understand quantum mechanics. They do know how to do quantum mechanics, but they do not understand quantum mechanics, and this is by their own admission. Let me give you a a piece that's very interesting here. And this relates to the types of things that would have been scoffed at. And you can have distractions or, you know, uh, it's so easy to distract people and say, uh, either to ridicule certain people or to distract them. This all goes back to the same idea. This this is a newspaper article that came out of the the New York Times, February 8th, 2007. And this look, look at something they did at Harvard. It's called it's New York Times, page A11, on Thursday, February 8th, written by Kenneth Chang, who's a science writer for the New York Times, a really good science writer. He writes a lot of interesting things, especially with regard to physics. Uh, he wrote this, Wizardry at Harvard, physicists halt light and then move it. Now, light was always supposed to just go, right? And Einstein finally came up with some new understandings of light and, uh, and uh, a lot of relativity theory came out with regard to understanding the properties of light. Well, listen. It's like three-card Monty. Now you see it, now you don't. Then you see it over there. In a quantum mechanical sleight of hand, Harvard scientists have shown that they can not only bring a pulse of light, the fleetest of nature's particles, to a complete halt but they can resuscitate the light in a different location and let it continue on its way. The ability to catch, store, move, and release light could be used in future computers to process information encoded in the light pulses. It's been a wonderful problem to try to wrap your brain around, said Lean Vestergaard Howell, a professor of physics at Harvard and senior author of a paper describing the experiment that appears today in the journal Nature. There are so many doors that open up. In 1999, Dr. Howe headed a team of scientists that slowed light, which travels at a brisk 186,282 miles a second, when unimpeded, that's in a vacuum, to a leisurely 38 miles an hour by shining it into an exotic, ultra-cooled cloud of sodium atoms. At temperatures a fraction of a degree above absolute zero, the atoms coalesce into a single quantum mechanical entity known as a Bone-Einstein condensate. Shining a laser on the cloud 
tunes its optical properties so that it becomes molasses when a second light pulse enters it. Then, in 2001, Dr. Howell and a second team of physicists, this one from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, physics, physics, brought light to a complete halt by slowly turning off the laser. Bose-Einstein cloud, the Bose-Einstein cloud turned opaque, trapping the light pulse inside. When the laser was turned back on, the l- trapped light pulse flew out. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Capturing light just like you capture a rat in a cage? Well, the latest results add an additional twist, transporting the pulse to a second Bose-Einstein cloud and regenerating the light there. That's the sort of stuff we find really sexy in this business, said Eric A. Cornell, a senior scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder, Colorado. In the new Harvard experiment, when the initial pulse slammed into the first Bose-Einstein cloud, the collision caused 50,000 to 100,000 of the sodium atoms to start spinning almost like small tops, and push this small clump forward at less than a mile an hour. Dr. Howe described the clump atoms at a, as a metacopy of the light pulse. Although it consisted of sodium atoms instead of the particles of light, it, actually, it exactly captured the characteristics of the light pulse. The clump floated out from the rest of the cloud, traveled about two-tenths of a millimeter, and burrowed into a second Bose-Einstein cloud. When a laser was shined on the second cloud, the atom clump transformed into a new pulse of light identical to the original pulse. Uh, to the original pulse. Now, if you had actually told somebody just a few years back that you'd be able to stop light and then move it, like in a package somewhere else, and then open the door and have it fly out, you would have been totally ridiculed. Now, let us say that this was an important result with regard to something the intelligence community in the United States or some other place thought relevant to their own stuff. How easy would it be to ridicule somebody like that? So easy. How easy would it be to have certain people place news in the reports of the press and have a laughing thing going on? Okay? These are shocking types of results, but in the right context, if a government feels that it's important for their own intelligence for that information not to come out, they can do that. What's the lead story in today's newspaper dealing with a radio host? Oh, Imus. Yeah. What's his name? Imus. Imus. Imus in the morning. And what did he do? (coughs) He said derogatory terms about... uh, Basketball players, female at Rutgers. Yeah, yeah, female basketball players. He said racist terms. He's uh, apparently been known for saying very blunt racist terms for quite a number of years. But he had the ratings. Now, what do we draw from this? The culture of the United States seems to have enjoyed Mr. Imus for the longest time, despite his brash and often racist personality. Well, what do you get out of something like that? What kind of a culture would enjoy that? Think of the wrestling culture on TV. What do you see? There's a wrestling thing that's going on now where some big shot gets his head shaved or something like that. Some wrestler loses. Then it was some competition between him and Donald Trump. One of them was going to get their head shaved or something like that. And then the wrestlers come in with chairs and they throw each other around and boom, bang, and... Is there thinking going on in that culture? Do you, do you get the idea? But it's wildly popular. I mean, wrestling is wildly popular. What I would like you to think about is the culture that supports that type of entertainment is fundamentally anti-intellectual. You're not thinking. You're acting in a bold, stupid way. But you're acting in a way. It goes back to the American origin of American thought, where we went out to the Wild West. Clint Eastwood was never given any medals for being an intellectual in his dramatic portrayals. Clint Eastwood was the guy who, you know, said blunt things, shot people. Do you get the idea? It's not a thinking thing. Well, that Clint Eastwood, there's nothing wrong with Clint Eastwood himself. It's is, from what I understand, is, uh, you know, 
quite an intellectual, but the portrayal, the portrayals that he has uh, on TV fits with the American culture. A non-thinking cowboy image. That's George W. Bush. A non-thinking cowboy image. Americans like that. It's very popular. It's a level of anti-intellectualism that is very different from Europe. Well, when you have a culture that supports people like Imus, people that really are valued not because they think things through in a complex fashion, but because they say bold statements. Well, an, an anti-intellectual culture like that is very vulnerable to disinformation because people don't think, think things through. People say, well, you just have, you just, someone says something, so you know, it must be true, and they don't question it. Well, in a situation where you're trying to control people, those two methods, disinformation or subterfuge or, or distractions, or sometimes in combination, are the two methods. But in both cases, you're interested in the same result, control. In both cases, you're interested in the same result, control. Now, in the gods themselves, what were they trying to do? What was this subterfuge all about? What was the plot? Um, didn't one of the, this guy, like, Neville, he wanted to... Or Blast Neville. Or Change the orbits of the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mod yeah, deal with the orbits of the moon. Uh, shift it. And we've seen that actually in a number of science fiction books where they actually talk about moving planets. You know, it, we shouldn't disregard that possibility, the possibility of moving planets. If you went back just a few hundred years and told people what we were doing today, they would have laughed at all of this. Just as laughing at the idea of capturing light in a box and then moving it and then opening the box and letting it out would have been laughed at. But the possibility of moving planets or moving the moon, that's uh, if they have some reason for that. And to do that, they needed some type of subterfuge. What you're raising is the issue of control. It's not just hiding information and distracting like a magician. A magician, when a magician, a successful magician, does things but does things that people are supposed to see as a distraction to the things that she or he is doing that they're not supposed to see. So the issue that you're talking about now is not just distraction, it's the issue of control. And in a society like ours, where you have an open democracy, control is fundamentally important. And the vulnerability of our society to that type of control is... It's anti-intellectual culture. I'd like you to think about it because whenever you have someone trying to manipulate or deceive, the success of that is always dependent upon people not questioning. Isn't that interesting? You raise a very important point. How to control? Is it through deception or is it through disinformation? But the issue of control is the key. Excellent, excellent raise points you're raising. Excellent, excellent points you're raising. Okay, well let's let's go on. What? Who else has a has a passage? Um, I have one on uh, page one twelve. One twelve. Is everyone there? Okay, and this is chapter two C of the. Uh, second part of the novel where you're actually dealing with the extraterrestrials. And what? where do you start? Um, uh, I guess with a new hard one, sort of in the middle. A new hard one. Oh, all right. Why don't you just go ahead? Okay, hold on. Um. Um, a new hard one, said Tritt with distinct lack of interest. Odin found sharp interest in associating with hard ones, but Tritt, Tritt wished the interest didn't exist. Odin was more intent on what he called his education than any other rational in the area. That was unfair. Odin was too up, wrapped up in that. Duo was too wrapped up in roaming the surface alone. No one was properly interested in the triad but Tritt. He's called Estwald, said Odin. Estwald? Tritt did feel a twinge of interest. Perhaps it was because he was anxiously sensing Odin's feelings. 
I've never seen him, but they talk about him. His <coughs> eyes had flattened out, as they usually did when he turned introspective. He's responsible for that new thing they've got. What new thing? The positron pump. You wouldn't understand, Trit. It's a new thing they have. It's going to revolutionize the whole world. What's revolutionize? Make everything different. Trit was at once alarmed. They mustn't make everything different. They'll make everything better. Different isn't always worse. Anyway, Estwald is responsible. He's very bright, I get the feeling. Then why don't you like him? I didn't say I didn't like him. You feel as though you don't like him. Oh, nothing of the sort, Trit. It's just that somehow, somehow, Odine laughed. I'm jealous. Hard ones are so intelligent that a soft one is nothing in comparison. But I got used to that because Lowson said, was always telling me how bright I was for a soft one, I suppose. But now this Estwald comes along, and even Lawson seems lost in admiration, and I'm really nothing. Um, so there are a couple of things, but I thought that this was really interesting after you'd finished this section, because I went back and found it um, after I finished. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, here's Tritt um, being all upset that he's not this great Estwald when um, you find out at the end of the chapter that he actually is. Um, But it sort of just reminded me of like how um, since the hard ones are sort of in control here, like they they make everyone feel inferior and how people um, and and it sort of like reminded me of sort of like your the the scenario we keep talking about of of like the um, generations of of scientists or or any sort of place where there's um, hierarchy based on age um, that the young ones don't realize that they can one day become that. Um, and I have a feeling that, like, even the grad students who are at the the, the edge of their field um, in, like, science uh, still worship the people who are above them and still um, hold them in high regard, even though they're the ones who are the front runners of, of science. Um, so I just thought that was interesting, especially within context of the novel. That is interesting. You know... It's it's fascinating how this generational divide that shows up very clearly in human societies being described here with an extraterrestrial perspective by Asimov. And it really does point to the idea that the younger generation and the older generation are essentially the same. They merge into one another. And it's the younger generation that are the rebels that are coming up with the odd ideas that are fighting against things that are unconventional and it's the older generation that fight against that yet they're the same now look at there's a new there's a new biography by Einstein about about Einstein that's just come out that guy was on the Daily Show pardon me? That um, the guy who wrote it was on Daily Show. Walter Isaac. Oh, was he on? Pardon me. His name's Walter Isaac. He was also yeah. on Fresh Air. Yeah, Isaacson. Yeah. yeah, Isaacson. Yeah. Yeah. He's very awkward. I gotta say. Yeah, he was also interviewed um, by uh, uh, in on Fresh Air National Public Radio. It's a fascinating book. Um, but the interesting thing that was so fascinating to me is the insidious corruptive force of authority. Because in this book, the author so clearly describes how Einstein was a rebel all throughout his younger years. His first three decades were fighting authority, and he loved it. I mean, he relished it. He loved to fight. And then, by his own admission, the worst thing that happened to him is the recognition that he was completely right, and he became an authority. And he himself said he turned into his very enemy. He turned into the authority. And his last 40 years were quite unproductive. He said God was punishing him for, <laughs> for hating authority. So For hating and, authority. So yeah, and, and so he became the very thing that he hated. And you know, just think, Einstein himself turned into, morphed into the authority. The rebel morphed into. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. You have the, the three immature extraterrestrials that eventually merge into an older one, the one that they didn't even know, Estwald, the, the, the enemy himself, the authority himself, was, they merge into that very person. And that person, in fact, the last words of this entire section, uh, after the merge completes, 
is Estuald steps forth. This is literally after the rebelling trio is fighting and fighting, and then they finally merge together, and Estuald steps forth and said sadly to the waiting hard ones by way of vibrating airwaves, I am permanently with you now. There is much to do. Oh, he goes to destroy planet Earth. And so it's very interesting that in the seeds of every new generation is... In, in within every new generation is the seed of its own destruction. The, the insidious, corruptive capability of authority. And as m- much as it's interesting that authority corrupts, it's also eagerly sought after. Einstein, from the very beginning, wanted that Nobel Prize. When he was married with his first wife, and they were divorcing... He had, he was still, you know, he was writing things as a patent clerk. The stuff that he got the Nobel Prize for was the stuff that he, he didn't even, he couldn't even get an assistant professor's job. And he was still a patent clerk and he was writing these things. That's what he won a Nobel Prize for. And when he was divorcing his first wife, they, they originally had a very passionate relationship, but it fell out and was cool. And when he got a divorce, he didn't have any money. He couldn't afford a divorce. So he wrote up a contract. Actually, he he gave a bargain to his wife and said, look, um, I'm going to win a Nobel Prize eventually for this stuff. If if you grant me a divorce now, you can have the entire Nobel Prize. You can take all the money. She actually took a few days to think about it, went to a lawyer, got a contract written up, when the Nobel Prize came about, she was to get the whole thing. It wasn't until like years later, like 15, 20 years, a long time, 1920 or something, but 15 years later that he finally got the Nobel Prize. Sure enough, she went and she collected. She got the whole thing. So the point is that did Einstein seek authority? He both rebelled against it and he sought it. It's the nature of humanity. It's the nature of us. We both seek that which we hate. Isn't that interesting? We seek authority. We seek to succeed. And by fighting the authority, we are trying to overthrow that authority. But by doing that, and you know we're going to succeed, because the authority eventually goes away. The authority eventually becomes old and dies. So eventually there's a generational replacement, as Max Planck talked about. When we succeed, we fail. And then we are destined for the next generation. It's so hard to keep a revolutionary spirit to the very end, especially if you're if you become an authority. And I think that's what Einstein um, suffered from, and that's what Asimov is talking about. I'm going to say something that's awful. Very fortunately, people like Asimov people like Philip K. Dick were never fully recognized for their genius at the time when they were writing. Or they may have stopped writing. They may have stopped pushing the envelope. It's interesting how our challenges are the things that make us productive. And then when we succeed in our conquering our challenges, we stop being productive. It, it, in some sense, for some people, winning the Nobel Prize is, can be the kiss of death. Now, this can happen in other realms of politics as well. Look at the Dalai Lama. How much of an influence has the Dalai Lama had in Western civilization? Well, it's growing every decade. It's growing every year. It's been growing and growing. What if he had never been expelled? Actually, he escaped. What if he had never escaped because of the, the Chinese invasion of Nepal? What if he had never been forced out? He'd still be in Nepal, still considered the leader that he always was destined to be, and the rest of the world would have been languishing. We would not have gotten any of his influence. Now he's a distinguished professor here at Emory, coming here to Emory, and Emory now has an educational back and forth between the Dalai Lama and the monks and so on like that. Um, the Dalai Lama's influence for the planet Earth would have been minimized completely. 
what would happen if he succeeded? And suddenly China withdrew from Nepal and he went back there and had his kingdom. Would have been, where would the rest of us... That, what would happen if his challenges stopped? Well, his influence on the rest of humanity may go away as well. It's precisely because he hasn't yet succeeded in his drive to, you know, to make his mark that he's so powerful. Isn't that interesting? So, uh, it's odd for someone to have the greatest success, you sometimes have to wish them, may you never succeed. <laughs> because if you never succeed, they're going to keep on trying to the very end. I think um, that in, in the interview, uh, the guy said that Einstein, someone asked Einstein why he was wasting his time with some of his later things, and he said, because I can afford to. Um, because he was already the yeah. authority, he has nothing left to, to, to fight. He can afford to do it. He was trying to fight the the quantum mechanics understanding of a probabilistic universe by uh, coming up with the unified field theory that would unify the understanding of classical and quantum realms. Never succeeded. There was a missing element in what he was doing. The same thing happened to Truman Capote. Tell me, talk about Truman Capote. <coughs> After he wrote In Cold Blood, he never mm. actually published another book because of the popularity of that novel. Kind of you know, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and Gustav Holst uh, said he wished he'd never written The Planets uh, because no one ever wanted to listen to anything else he ever wrote. Uh, Gustav Holst. That happens to an awful lot of <clears throat> it's an awful lot of people. They do one thing, and then, in fact, a lot of singers have that same problem. Um, they, uh, who's the? Um, Oh, it'll come to me in a second. I, he's on the tip of my tongue. You're all, you're all going to know him. The the biggest. He's actually the richest pop pop star singer in uh, in Britain. He's got more monetary assets, I believe, than Paul McCartney. I don't know why I can't think of his name. He's married to Iman. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I'm looking at him in my in my mind right now. I just Iman the model. Uh, David Bowie. Okay, I don't know why I got a little... Sometimes you just can't remember your grandmother's name or something like that. Uh, David Bowie has often lamented that he hates going and doing live concerts. And then said, well, why? You have so many fans. And he says, they want to hear the same old songs. They want... They have an image of what they want, and they want that. But I want to grow out of that. I want to do other things. So he's had to come up with a blend of sticking some new things in, packing the old stuff in as well. Yeah, it's interesting, people. Yeah, so I, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a trouble. Once you become an authority, once you become big, you become a fixture. In fact, what happens if an authority stays a rebel? What would happen if an authority stayed a rebel? Would the authority still maintain herself or himself as an authority? Would they remain as an authority? Think about that. Rebels challenge, right? And in the process of challenging, they get people upset. And in the process of getting people upset, they get very upset. There are examples of people who stayed rebellious to the end. Look at Socrates. We've looked at Socrates before. We've looked at Jesus before. We've looked at people who were rebellious to the very end. They do not have good fates. Look at Galileo. Eventually, society snuffs them out, gets rid of them. So an authority that's, that remains a rebel is an authority for a very short period of time. Because the very nature of humanity is one to fix things. But you can't hold on to things like that. So a rebel has to either stop being a rebel to be an authority, or a rebel has to give up the position of authority by continuing to rebel. And that means a constantly tumultuous life. It's very hard for some people to do. A constantly tumultuous life. Some people can thrive on it, but it's very, very few who can thrive on it. 
And once you have that much wealth, wealth and not in terms of money, but wealth in terms of authority, prestige, remember what Jesus said. It's as difficult for a rich person to get into heaven as it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. This metaphor has nothing to do with, you know, I'm not referring to it in, in any way that's, that's religious. I'm referring to it now as simply, once you have a lot of something that you value, it's so hard to let it go. It's so hard to let it go. And people of authority became people of authority because of the rebellious spirit, but it's so hard to let go of that authority. There's an African thing. You know, I'm, I'm, African things are sort of close to me. I've lived in Africa for a while. My wife is African. and I like a lot of African stories. How do you catch a monkey in Africa? You have any? Okay, this is what they do. Uh, true. This is true. This is how you catch a monkey in Africa. You go up to the monkeys with a gourd. You have a gourd that has a narrow top on it. And you go up to the monkeys so they can see you. And you put some shiny things that, 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 that the monkeys <coughs> like uh, inside the gourd. You just put them in the gourd. And then you put the gourd down. And you walk away at a safe distance. The monkeys come up. And they get, the, they look at the, they look at the gourd, and they see the hole, and they reach their hand into the gourd, and they grab the shiny things with their hand, or the one monkey. You can only do one monkey at a time can do it. Grabs it with his hand and tries to pull out. Now the hand can't come out anymore because it's in a fist. And then once the hand can't come out because it's in a fist, the African just simply walks up to the monkey because it's stuck there with the gourd, <laughs> and grabs the monkey, you know, takes it away, and that's how you capture a monkey. The monkey was not able to release the wealth that it had. It could have gotten away easily. Just let go of the wealth. Let go of the shiny stuff and get your hand out of the gourd and run for it. That's how you capture a monkey. How much of that thinking is genetic that we still have? <laughs> how, do you get, how do you stop a rebel from being a rebel? Give that person some wealth. And the wealth, not in terms of money, but in terms of whatever they want. And if they want authority, that's the wealth that they want, and that's the wealth that they get. And then they stop being the rebel. And in fact, that's exactly what happened to Einstein. Exactly what happens to so many of us. By the way, that's a, for a political reason, that's a good reason to have a rotating presidency, a presidency that only has a limitation of eight years, because once you become the president, you become the authority. And presidents that stay in longer in other countries like Mugabe and Zimbabwe, they always end up becoming corrupted. Mugabe was a great revolutionary. He fought the independence battles for Zimbabwe when there was Rhodesia. But once he became an authority, corruption sets in. So it's really good to have presidents kicked out after a very brief period of time because they stop being rebels fighting for the good of things and they start being authorities that fight against rebels. Okay, what else? Did you have something, Joshua? Yeah. What, what, what page? Page 289. 289. This is in the third part. Near the end. I'm going to start at Denison's uh, There Are Advantages. There Are Advantages? Yeah. Great. Okay, middle of page 289. And this is the third part. And actually, what chapter is this? Chapter 18. Yeah, All right. Denison said, there are advantages in having Earth as a neighbor. You have the influx of the emigrants. You have the cultural intercourse. You have a planetary world of two billion people just over the horizon. Do you want to give all that up? Gladly. Is it true of the people of the moon generally, or just of you? There's something intense about you, Neville. You won't go out onto the surface. Other lunarites do. They don't like it particularly, but they do. The interior of the moon, the moon isn't their womb, as it is in your case. It isn't their prison as it is yours. There's a neurotic factor in you that is absent in most lunar rites, or at least considerably weaker. If you take the moon away from Earth, you make it into a prison for all. It will become a one-world prison from which no man, and not you only, can emerge, not even to the extent of seeing the other, another inhabited world in the sky. Perhaps that is what you want. I want independence, a free world, a world untouched by the outside. You can build ships, any number. You can move outward at near-light velocities without difficulty. 
Once you transfer momentum to the cosmic, you can explore the entire universe in a single lifetime. Wouldn't you like to get on such a ship? No, said Neville with clear distaste. Wouldn't you? Or is it couldn't? Or is it couldn't? Is it that you must take the moon with you wherever you go? Why must all the others accept your need? Because that's the way it's going to be, said Neville. Denison's voice remained level, but his cheeks reddened. Who gave you the right to say that? There are many citizens of Luna City who may not feel as you do. Um, what do you see is, there? I thought this was really interesting just because it's um, Denison talking to Neville, and it's like Neville is in this, adult, like, what we're just talking about, the authoritative mm-hmm. position, mm-hmm. except that he's not considering anyone else's opinion but his own will. And he's kind of being this, a selfish leader, and so I thought that was kind of a good point. Actually, that has tremendous parallels in politics because Neville's position is very similar to many charismatic revolutionaries. Look at Mao, for example, Mao Zedong. What was the nature of his authority? If you read about charisma as a form of leadership, a good place to start is Max Weber, sociologist who talked about charisma and the nature of charisma and how a charismatic leader leads by the nature of the authority vested in him by his followers or her followers due to the personality and the authority in a developing world should eventually transfer into the bureaucratic structure of the state So you don't have that charismatic leadership. But in situations where that charismatic leadership continues for a long period of time, like Mao Zedong, you end up having a single individual with their particular ideas lead people, whether they want it or not, in an unthinking manner to follow that leadership. What are some of the horrors that we saw in China? under Mao's leadership. When was he a leader? When was he a, a leader? Well, he was, it was, this was, actually he was a leader for, for a, a great part of the 20th century. But the periods that are most known to us are his, his, his leadership in the middle. Um, and when we talk about our concern with Mao, it was after World War. It was, predom- it was predominantly our concern after World War II, when the influence, when the communist influence in China was seen as a direct threat for the United States, uh, especially with the Korean conflict, and then later with the Vietnamese conflict. So, you're talking the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but. The issue with with Mao is that he led these revolutions. It wasn't just the initial revolution, but there was another major revolution in the middle of his revolutionary, of his his period of rule, in which tremendous hardship was, was enacted on his population. And in the beginning, the very first revolution, when he took over, you could sort of understand for it. They were understand that they were fighting against a corrupt authoritarian regime. Chiang Kai-shek eventually had to flee to go to Ch- uh, Taiwan, and that started the separation between mainland China and Taiwan. But the Cultural Revolution that occurred in the middle of Mao's regime of his of his rule produced a tremendous amount of hardship where many people were many people lost their lives I'm not talking tens under hundreds I'm talking you know huge numbers lost their lives or were imprisoned or sent to re-education camps in fact one of the uh, one of the future leaders of China Deng Xiaoping was a victim of of Mao's re-education camps where people were sent out to be, to be retrained in their thought and whether 
China was wanting to or not, Mao, through the force of his personality, as Weber would have discussed it, Max Weber would have discussed it, led them, brought them there. They had to wait till Mao died. And then, to this day, it's just now that the Chinese are slowly getting over the influence of Mao, and they move now into a capitalist economy, big time, but they haven't yet moved into a democratic regime. But they are concerned about this leadership in the terms of the force of personality, or, or basically one-person leadership. So, Joshua, what you're raising up is the idea of one person, be it, be it through the force of personality or through any other means, leads a people, leads a nation, or leads, in this case, a world, and makes decisions for others that others don't have any ability to challenge. And when you move the moon, the people that are on it simply go with you. Now, we can talk about this in terms of totalitarian or authoritarian regimes, but it also happens in democracies where people are manipulated. And this gets at something that Carolyn was raising earlier. The idea is to manipulate. The idea is to control. And in an authoritarian government, you can say clearly that's the culprit, the person at the top, Mao um, or Stalin or Hitler, trying to control the masses, or Mussolini. But the same human emotions and desires to control are present in democratic forms, in, uh, in democratic nations as well. So, for example, if you have a democratic leader wanting to do something, that democratic leader may have a populace that doesn't want to do that thing and has to manipulate that populace into doing that thing. Now, this is not to equate democratic leaders with authoritarian leaders like Mao, Hitler, uh, Mussolini, or Stalin. So I'm not saying any of the democratic leaders are like those guys. But what I am saying is the basic human desire to control seems to be the same across any form of government. When we look at um, the manipulations that you find in democratic leadership, where you try to manipulate the public. Well, let's go back to a situation where it turned out for the better. World War II was as close as you can get to a holy war that had to be fought. You were fighting against one of the meanest, nastiest forms of fascism you could ever imagine. It wasn't just Japanese imperialism, it was Nazism in Europe. And they were killing people by the millions just for racial reasons, genetic cleansing. It was just, I mean, they killed 6 million Jews, 20 million Slavs. I mean, it went on and on. That regime had to be stopped. Churchill, in a meeting with Roosevelt in the North Atlantic on a destroyer, Roosevelt loved the Navy, pleaded with Churchill. I mean, pleaded, uh, Churchill pleaded with Roosevelt Please enter the war now. I believe this was in 1940. And uh, please enter the war now. It's 1940 or 41. You wanted to enter the war right away. We were getting bombed by the, by, the, by the Germans on a regular basis. You have to do it now. And Roosevelt said, no, we're not going to do it now. And they switched. They said, what we will do is switch our economy using the classic lend-lease arrangement to change our automobile factories into tank factories, and we will supply you with the means of fighting the war, but we will not fight your war. Now. But we will do it in a little while. And Churchill said, why? What are you waiting for? And Roosevelt said, we're waiting for an incident to happen in the Pacific. When it happens in the Pacific, I will lead a united nation, a united country, a united nation into the war, and then we will join your, your war with, with, with uh, soldiers. He said he did not want to lead the nation like Woodrow Wilson led the United Nation, like the, led the United States into World War One. The United States was essentially an isolationist nation, and Woodrow Wilson didn't you know, lead a united country into that nation. He had to fight the war on domestic fronts as well as internationally. Roosevelt wanted this war to be fought with the entire country mobilized towards his war because he knew only 
the full force of the entire American nation. It had to be not an army against an army. It had to be a nation against a nation. Only the full force of the nation, fully mobilized, could defeat Nazism. So he was waiting for that incident in the Pacific. He didn't... Now, I'm not saying that he knew about the attack on Pearl Harbor in advance. We don't really know. There's lots of historians who debate whether he actually knew the Pearl Harbor attack was going to happen. But he knew that some major attack was going to happen, and he had to wait for it. And he knew that the United States would be all upset. The whole country would be upset, and then he would be able to fight the war, both the Pacific War and the European War, and there'd be no problems. Manipulation. A country... Remember, that's the time of Joseph Kennedy, the ambassador to Britain. U.S. Ambassador Britain, who didn't like the Brits at all and did not like the idea of going in to save their, to save their butts. <laughs> he did not like the idea of fighting for them. Uh, so there was a lot of isolationism. Uh, Joseph Kennedy was, of course, the uh, father of the Kennedy sons, uh, John, Robert, and Ed. And so, you know, Roosevelt knew he had to make sure he led in that way, and so he manipulated the public by simply by literally waiting, by gearing up the economy to fight the war, and then, then waiting for the Japanese to make some type of an attack. Well, let's look at another situation where manipulation occurred but didn't work out so well. That's our current situation in Iraq. Weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, mission accomplished. The whole thing, the manipulation worked, but the war effort. It wasn't the same as fighting Nazism, and the war effort didn't work. And you don't have the total mobilization of the nation. You have an army versus, you know, insurgents. It's a totally different situation. The, the difference here is that the United, Na the United States is not mobilized to fight. We're fighting at remote control with an army that we are very distant from. So, you know, it, it didn't work. That type of manipulation didn't work in, in that case. But in the same case, Joshua, what you raised was a very interesting passage, is this idea, this idea of manipulation. Actually, you know, it's interesting that a number of you are coming up with the same idea. Carolyn, you raised basically the same idea of manipulation as being, as being a key. Well, look, in the minutes that we have left, let's step back from the nitty-gritty of the novel and look at it from a larger perspective. What do we have here? We have a situation where an extraterrestrial group, civilization, is facing extinction if they don't find a new energy source. Hmm. And that they see it as a moral imperative for them to survive, and no alternatives are available other than the electron pump. And that if it means the destruction of an entire other civilization, such as human civilization, when our sun would go supernova, well, so be it. They need the energy, and it's, you know, one civilization is going to die, period. What does that... How does that strike you? What, what are your thoughts about that basic dilemma? Because that's really what the book is all about. Well, I respect it. I think when it comes down to, you know, it's us versus them, people are always going to choose themselves, you know? And it's a, it's a survival mechanism. Maybe it's something like to do with evolution. Hmm. People want to survive at um, all costs. Yeah, interesting. Let's get some more comments. That's good. That's good. What else? I feel like with a lot of the things we've read this semester, um, like that's come up before, like the buggers in um, in Ender's Game. Uh, the, the, the authority in Ender's Game was always saying, you know, it's either us or them. Um, and I think a lot of times, at least what these, these authors are trying to show, is that when people say it's us or them, Usually there's a compromise in there or a miscommunication that people aren't hearing about um, and that this is just the easier way out. Hmm. And also, <clears throat> I'm not sure that in the gods themselves that it is us or them because the electron pump 
had the potential to destroy both of them, it would have been a mutual thing. Speak more clearly. It would have been a mutual thing that would have occurred if the electron pump had destroyed the Earth. It would have also destroyed the other universe as well. Well, if it went supernova, that would have produced a huge amount of influx of energy to the other side. Right. And they said that it might, in fact, end up cooling down the other universe Mm. very slowly and so that it would have died eventually. Were they thinking it? Were the extraterrestrials thinking about that, though, when they were building it? You know, they weren't thinking of that as a real threat. That was a possibility. You know, there's an interesting thing that you also raise that this this raises an, uh, the 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 idea that the the drive to preserve yourself at the cost of others often is self defeating it can end up hurting you as well. What I'd like to raise is the issue that this way of acting is very common in human society, and it may be common elsewhere. The idea that the ends justifies the means in almost all realms seems to be pervasive in human activity. Today, there is an article in the New York Times front page where email communications, which are required by law to be recorded and saved when any policy matters are being decided by White House staff, where uh, that law was evaded in the first term under the Bush administration by officials who were using National Republican Committee email accounts to discuss not just politics, but also the firing of prosecutors, uh, discuss policy issues. And so many of those emails may have been lost. And what could you say about that? You could sort of say, well, what would be the thoughts behind the use of the other accounts and if it was purposeful? You can just imagine some people saying, well, you know, this is what needs to be done. Let's cover our tracks. This needs to be done. Um, it'll be all right in the end. The very act of fighting the war against Iraq to capture the oil. Can you think of it in terms of, well, this is what needs to be done. We need to secure the oil as a means of justifying it. Think, give it, try to come up with some examples right now that you can remember or that you've read about where people have said, we're going to bend the laws now or not do what's right now according to whatever you know, moral code or whatever code you want to think about in order to achieve some ends that seems right. But then it backfired. Try to think of one. I'll give you one more example, and then while I'm saying this example, try to think of another one. The Iran-Contra scandal during the Reagan administration, where Ali North and his compatriots, against the law, funneled, you know, sold, sold um, weapons, sold things to Iran against the law in order to be able to get funding um, to, because the U.S. wasn't going to fund the Contras in Nicaragua in order to get funding for the Contras uh, for them to fight their battle against the Sandinistas. Now, at the time, Ali North and colleagues said, was saying it was a national thing, a national priority. We needed to do it for the ends justified the means. And I remember very clearly Ali North standing up in Congress with his uniform on saying he was a patriot having broken the law, for having done what he should not have done. Basically saying he was going to defy the rules because the rules were not appropriate given, the, given what needed to happen, the ends justifying the means. Yet it backfired, backfired tremendously. Ed, Ed Meese, the uh, former Attorney General of the Reagan administration, I believe he said at one point that had that 
scandal not been contained, Reagan himself probably would have been impeached. I mean, it was a very delicate thing. It was far worse than what happened with the Nixon administration and the cover-up with regard to Watergate. But uh, that, that's another example of bungling that went astray. But go ahead. Try to think of an example now in the three minutes that are remaining. Did someone come up with an example of... I'm not sure if this fits exactly, but with the Valerie Plume thing, like how... Excellent. Scooter, Speak about it. Um, Scooter Libby gave away her identity, um, you know, the CIA thing, so that... Um, what exactly happened here? Excellent. Think, like, he was trying to discredit her husband or something, because he said something about weapons of mass destruction not being in um, Iraq. Yes. The idea was that they were trying to paint the case that Iraq had nuclear weapons when there was really no evidence that they had nuclear anything. <coughs> and um, Valerie Bloom's husband, Ambassador Wilson, uh, had gone to Iraq and determined that Saddam Hussein had... I'm sorry, he had not gone to Iraq. He had gone to an African country and found that Saddam Hussein had never sought to buy large quantities of uranium to ship back. And that was going against what the administration was pumping out in terms of its own propaganda. And so one of the things they thought they could do to... And, and this guy published it in, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a column that this just isn't the case. Iraq, Saddam Hussein wasn't trying to do that. And one of the things that the administration thought to, sought to do was to discredit him and damage him in some way. And one of the ways was to damage him was to damage his wife, to stop her career. And basically saying, if, you, you know, if you're not going to go by what we want to do, you're not going to be playing the rules. You're not going to be playing. If you're not going to play by our rules, and we're not going to play by yours, and you and your family are going to suffer. And then announced that his, uh, his wife was a CIA agent, which destroyed her career. What has not been gone into, seriously, is a thorough investigation if the people that she had contact with all throughout her years as a CIA agent have been imprisoned, lost their jobs, perhaps their lives, as a consequence of this. So the, this wasn't a case of just ruining Valerie Plume's career. It was a case of potentially murder, because if you're in a developing country that doesn't have, you know, free... or If you're in a developing country and it's been determined that somebody was definitely a CIA spy, the very first thing that that developing country does is send its intelligence force out, its police force out, to arrest everybody that had contact with her, put them in prison, <laughs> you know, round them all up. They were feeding her information. Well, I mean, and that doesn't so, even have to be a developing country, because, I mean, even... It would happen in others as well. Some, someone who did that in the United States would be charged with treason. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it was a serious offense, and again, it backfired. But what was the reaction? You can see the rationale behind it. The rationale is it's for the better purpose, the better goal. The goal is we must invade Iraq because of, you know, we need the oil supplies, and it will all be justified by the ends. This is human nature. And I think this is one of the most fundamental aspects of this whole, this whole novel, Asimov is talking about the stupidity of humanity, the stupidity, absolute stupidity, and that's the word he uses, of humanity. When we seek to do things by circumventing all of the rules of better behavior that we have designed to be appropriate, because we suddenly think some goal is important, and more important than the rules of better behavior. The ends justifies the means. And in this case, the ends of letting one civilization destroy another. This is humanity. This is what we do. We uh, do that. We make those types of decisions all the time. Anyway, that, I was reflecting on the gods themselves, and I was thinking uh, if there was any one thing that really pointed to the most profound aspect of this, it was the... Uh, the issue that I think all of us, all of you have been raising, the issue of manipulation, subterfuge, the idea of achieving some goal just because you think it's important. All right, we are going to go on into the next novel, and this is a favorite. What is it? Neuromancer. 
What's that? Is this neuromancer? Neuromancer. And let me get the syllabus out. This is a form of cyberpunk. Really, it's one of the sources that people often say are the uh, beginning and the definition of cyberpunk. William Gibson's Neuromancer. Trust me, you're going to love this one. This one is going to be like a super spectacular one. And uh, let's get it. It'll go quickly because it's an exceptionally fast read, fascinating, and very contemporary novel. Let's get at least half of it completely read by by Tuesday. Uh, try to get a little bit further into it, 60% of it, so that you can finish it completely by the, the following Thursday. Okay? Cyberpunk. It's going to be uh, a big thing. And it is a racy novel. Uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson is the other one, the other major example of cyberpunk that is often raised by people as being the two big examples of cyberpunk. But William Gibson's Neuromancer next next Tuesday.